Coming up on today's show, we've got Dr. Zachary Benny in to give us an update on the NBA's comeback plan. Mike Vorkanoff stops by to talk about the Knicks. We sort of talk about the Hornets. And we look at Seth's piece on condensing the NBA schedule. Welcome to the Back to Back Pod on the Athletic Podcast Network. This is Nerdish You Wrote with your host, Dave Dufour. With Mo Dekeel and Seth Partow. Are you ready to be entertained? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Murder, She Wrote on the Back to Back Podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dave DeFore, joined as I am every week by Mo and Seth. And this week, we've brought back Dr. Zachary Benny to talk about uh, what's happening in Florida and in particular how it impacts the NBA. Dr. Benny, welcome back. Thanks, Dave, Mo, Seth. Good to be back. Yeah, you're almost like the unofficial fourth host of the show at this point. You're the fifth Beatle. <laughs> when, when do I get my free sub? Yeah. Shoot. Man, I'm still waiting for mine. I've been on more shows. Come on, Zach. <laughs> okay, so uh, I want to jump right into this because we're we're obviously barreling toward the, the NBA comeback. Teams are going to start in the next two weeks, start showing up in Orlando. Uh, the Raptors are already there because they, you know, dealing with the Canadian border situation. Uh, wanted to avoid that. So they're actually doing their training camp in Florida. Um, you've had a chance to look over the NBA's plan. How do you feel about it just broadly? I really like the plan, uh, to be honest with you. And if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I would have said I thought it had maybe an 85% chance of working. I was feeling really good about it. But then cases started exploding in Florida, uh, including in the Orlando area. We've seen uh, the percentage of tests come back positive, uh, rising uh, above 15%, I believe now. Uh, There are more cases uh, than there were before. Uh, Doesn't really show a lot of signs of slowing down right now. And uh, the data isn't really available, but I think we have some information to suggest uh, hospitalizations are going up too. And so that's really concerning. If you have more disease around you, then there's more of a chance that it sneaks through whatever bubble you have set up because nothing's 100% perfect. So if that's unlikely to happen sort of as a baseline probability, then you don't worry about it too much. But if it gets more and more likely and there are more and more breakdowns, then the likelihood of a truly explosive outbreak that shuts down the league um, rises. So I'm a little more worried. I'd, I'd still say I'm maybe 65-35 in favor of the plan working, but I'm, I'm a lot more nervous than I was. I'm uh, I'm glad you mentioned sort of the baseline rate because I think a lot of the discussion of it is uh, when we're talking about the risk factors, um, what what is the additional risk that we should be discussing when we're talking about any sort of return to play scenario? Because as you say, uh, the 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 virus is out there, and we're kind of seeing uh, players as they're coming back to kind of enter the the protocol for going into the bubble we're, I think, unsurprisingly seeing a number of positive tests, right, as we're uh, starting to record, uh, which just announced that uh, Malcolm Brogdon has, has tested positive for COVID-19, for example. So um, how do you assess kind of the additional risk of, 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 a, of a restart plan, whether it's uh, basketball or any sport? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it is really important to understand the timing of any positive tests that we hear about, because the source of where that positive test came from is really important, by which I mean Malcolm Brogdon's positive test, I would suspect 
just came from him existing in the community where he lives and from his daily life rather than any individual NBA workouts. It's possible that he picked something up at a team facility, but but my guess would be that it's more likely to, that he just picked it up from his daily life. So that's not an indication that the NBA has done anything wrong. That's an indication of the difficulty of bringing sports back right now and that their testing system is working as designed. What I'm really going to be worried about is if we start seeing positive tests several days after players arrive in Orlando, because that's when it's clear that these are cases arising from uh, players or staff who are in the bubble And that means that the disease is in the bubble and you need to figure out why that's occurred, if it's an isolated incident or uh, if it's going to blow up into a larger thing. Yeah. So I got a question for you, Zach, and this might be a unintelligent question and I apologize here. Um, No, not at all. There are no stupid questions. Yeah, there are. Trust me. Remember, Uh, I'm a teacher. I can't say that. Yeah, but you but you think it and that's a fact. The the question I have, though, is can you go into the difference of somebody testing positive and being asymptomatic and, and versus obviously showing symptoms and things like that? Are, are you I don't want anybody to feel like they're they're more safe if they if they've gotten it and they've been asymptomatic and then it left them. You, you know, are they do they have antibodies? Are they a little little less likely to get it like what's can you go into that a little bit or is it too soon in the disease like can you just kind of explain that because as we know players are gonna probably test players are testing positive but if they're asymptomatic does that give us a little more relief or is it like nah we still slight relief i guess right so you had a few questions in there so let me try and tackle them all but if i miss something call me out on it or if there's something you want to follow up on so what i would say is that If you test positive and you're not feeling any symptoms yet, that doesn't mean that you won't develop symptoms in the future because we know that you can shed the virus before you show symptoms. So that's one of the big problems with this disease that makes it so hard to contain is if you were only infectious to others after you showed a fever or a cough, then we could just say, hey, if you develop a fever or a cough, shut it down, let us get you a test, right? That would be easy, but we can't just do that because you're already spreading the disease. Even if you never show symptoms, we still know that you are capable of spreading the disease to others. Maybe it's a little bit less likely, but it's definitely still very, very possible. So that's why we have to do this regular testing to identify the disease uh, as soon as it shows up. Obviously, if you aren't showing symptoms and don't continue to show symptoms, that makes us feel some relief for your personal health right? You're not going to end up in the hospital or on a ventilator, though we still don't know the long-term effects of this disease. Um, Nobody on earth, as far as we know, has had it for more than seven months. So I literally can't tell you what your life is going to be like a year after you get COVID-19. That knowledge doesn't exist in the universe. Uh, We know that some people have struggled with it for weeks or months, uh, including elite athletes. So that's definitely something to be worried about. The the risk is not zero, but uh, you know, if you don't develop symptoms, that does make us feel a little bit better for you personally. But uh, even those who never show symptoms have shown some signs of lung damage. So it's possible, especially for elite athletes, that you might suffer some performance degradation that could be career altering. I'm, I'm not saying it's likely. I don't think we have any idea how likely it is, but it's still a possibility. As far as immunity goes and antibodies, um, 
our best guess is that you probably have some level of immunity for some time, but we don't know exactly how strong that immunity is or how long it lasts. So I want to uh, change the subject slightly. I saw an interview you did, uh, one, one of the many interviews that, that, that uh, you've done as you've become kind of the, uh, the, the sports whisperer of this a little bit. Um, you made an interesting point, I thought, which was a uh, sort of a, a background danger of the, uh, of the disease spreading uh, widely in and around Orlando is, you know, a, a rebound effect uh, in, in, in how it affects, for example, if a player gets injured and has to go to the hospital. Could you, uh, you know, talk a little bit more about kind of those second order dangers of, of you know, the strain on the overall medical system in the, in the environment? Right. So I think one of the major things that I'm worried about in Orlando, even if the NBA is able to tighten the bubble enough and maybe get Disney employees in, so there are a little less opportunities for cases to sneak in and and it's still okay to progress with that from a, a player health perspective, is if Orlando doesn't have enough tests for the cases that it has, if people are struggling to get tests, and I, I think it's possible that they're cruising towards that point, then how can you, the NBA, be testing everybody every day or every other day just down the road in Disney and people in Orlando can't get a test? Like, is that ethical? Is that a position you want to put yourself in? Uh, I don't know how you could continue the league if Orlando gets to that point. And the other thing to worry about would be if hospitals get full of COVID patients, if they're overwhelmed, if the ICUs are full, um, if a player gets injured badly enough, they're going to need to go to the hospital. And how can you add that extra burden on a hospital that's already near the breaking point? And how can you put a player into that high-risk environment with a bunch of COVID cases? Um, I think those are other ethical concerns that you need to worry about. So uh, if I see hospitals start to get overwhelmed or tests uh, really hard to come by in Orlando, um, that that would really worry me for the the viability of the NBA's plan, even if the bubble is tight enough uh, to not um, – to not let a bunch of cases in and cause an explosive outbreak within the league. I just think that the situation would be too tough to play in. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the tracking ring from aura. Uh, and now there's this, this study on the whoop strap, which is another tracking device. Um, aura is claiming picking up COVID-19 symptoms three days early with 90% accuracy. Uh, the whoop study says 20% uh, two days before symptoms start. Uh, do you put any stock in, in this? Uh, like, it seems a bit um, uh, like a reach. No, I put no stock in them. <laughs> Next question. No, yeah, but seriously, that's what I, thought, uh, right? I, don't, I, I don't. I don't put any stock in them. I mean, here, I'll give you a 90% accurate algorithm for you developing COVID symptoms in the next three days, Dave. You ready? Right. Dave, you will not develop COVID symptoms in the next three days. Mo, you will not develop COVID symptoms in the next three days. Seth, neither will you. 90% of the time, I'm going to be right. It's There is, as far as I can tell, no data or paper to back those up. It's just statements. Um, and I'm really suspicious when I see claims like that. So like, you know, like, like most good marketing bits, there's, there's a kernel of truth here. Uh, for example, if we can monitor your pul- the level of oxygen in your blood, sometimes that can give us a signal earlier than you actually start feeling short of breath. 
Okay, so I'm not saying it's a it's a bad idea necessarily for NBA players uh, or staff to wear these rings. Maybe it'll give up a warning or two, um, and it's an easy way to kind of continuously monitor some some basic vitals. But uh, I don't put a lot of stock in those marketing claims. No. So uh, as we're moving towards kind of the the proposed date of resumption, uh, what are the indicators you're going to look at in terms of this is is getting too dangerous or I think this is going to be okay? Yeah, like I said earlier, it's going to be a combination of um, the number of cases. More cases is bad, although sometimes that can be the result of more testing, though it's not in Florida. There are actually more cases occurring. I'm going to be looking at the test positive percentage. Um, as it creeps higher, that's an indication that they don't have the tests that they need. That's one of the things I said uh, would be concerning for uh, the NBA's ability to to continue their league, especially with as much testing as they're planning on doing in the Orlando bubble. Uh, I'm watching hospitalizations, uh, which Florida is not great on reporting out, but gives us an indication of the amount of severe disease and how much stress their medical system is going to be under. And those are probably the three main things that I'm going to be watching. Um, If they start to plateau and go downwards, uh, that would be really encouraging if they continue going up particularly in the Orlando area, not just the broader Florida numbers, but in the Orlando area, um, I'm going to be really worried. And then I'm going to be looking to see if there's any hope either from the NBA or from the state of Florida for things to improve. So could the NBA tighten their bubble up a little bit by working Disney uh, personnel in? Uh, Will the state of Florida actually take any steps backwards in terms of what they've been reopening and uh, roll some things back and try and uh, engage in strategies to drive the cases down? So it's going to be a combination of numbers and policy that I'm watching. Um, And, uh, you know, just like the NBA in its protocol doesn't have a strict threshold for when things get too bad. It's kind of a, I'll know it when I see it thing. I I kind of feel the same way, but those are some of the numbers that I'm going to be watching. And I'm, you know, I'm not sticking a fork in the NBA's plan by any means. Like I said, I, I still think it's more likely than not to work, but, but I'm worried. Okay. As we sort of wrap this up, uh, if there was one change you could make to the NBA's plan that we know of, of course, um, what would it be? I mean, if I could wave a magic wand, I would probably make sure that the testing is daily for everyone. Uh, It's somewhere between every other day and more frequent than that per the protocol. So if I could just nail that down and make it daily, uh, I would. Or I would would think about moving the Disney employees like housekeepers and food service staff uh, into the bubble. Uh, That's a really difficult ask for them. And it's uh, logistically and and psychologically and socially uh, burdensome. But it would certainly reduce contact between those uh, within the NBA bubble and and outside it in Orlando. And if you have a whole lot of disease floating around, um, that that might help. You know, two weeks ago, I said that uh, I didn't think the Disney people needed to be in the bubble. And I stand by that two weeks ago because there wasn't enough disease. And what we're learning is that really what you're worried about is person-to-person direct transmission from respiratory droplets. So if people aren't face-to-face, like if the housekeepers never come face-to-face with any of the players or staff, and same thing for the food service staff, you do everything to go, uh, you wouldn't necessarily have to worry too much about transmission. But 
that risk still isn't zero. So when you pile that non-zero risk on top of a lot of people in Orlando being sick, that's a much bigger deal than if you have that little bit of risk on top of just a small risk of anybody in Orlando being sick. So, so those are the two things that I would look at. Dr. Benny, thank you as always for enlightening us and, uh, you know, at least giving us context for, for some of the stuff that we're reading, because obviously it's a lot of information to parse through and we, we always appreciate your expertise. Absolutely. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on and take care and stay safe. We are the New York Knicks. We are the New York Knicks. We are the New York Knicks. Say go New York, go New York, go. Go New York, go New York, go. Say go New York, go New York, go. Go New York, go New York, go. Joining the show this week to talk about uh, the Knicks, New York Knicks beat writer for The Athletic, my good buddy, Mike Vorkanoff. Mike a uh, little bit of news today. A little bit this of news. This is Mitch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the Knicks hired World Wide West. Um, I don't quite get it. Because he, he essentially was working with them anyway, right? Why make it official? Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? That's an interesting analogy for an NBA executive. Um you know, that's a good question. I, I think our Sham Sharani reported in February when Leon Rose was first like in agreement to come on um, that they couldn't quite make it work. And he wasn't able to quite like uh, divest of all his various um, business interests, I guess, um, to come inside. And I, now they're making it work. You know, I'd heard that he was still kind of helping the Knicks from the outside for the last few months. Uh, I, I would say the simplest thing that I can think of is just simply like the relationship with Leon Rose, like they're legitimate longtime friends, um, friendship that predates the rise of both of these guys in the basketball ecosystem. And I think part of it is probably just personal, just wanting to work together. Um, you know, he's got a pretty good relationship with James Dolan. And so, you know, seize the moment type of thing. Let, I guess they could think uh they could do better with Wes on the inside working from msg than um from the outside so this is like caa basketball essentially running the new york knicks how is that different than what they've been doing well i was gonna say some would say that's been the case for a few years even before that i think the 2013 knicks were like pretty much uh considered to be a ca conglomerate at the time just going back through uh clips so yeah i i mean i don't really know i mean um, I can't give you like a tangible difference. Leon Rose comes in, former CA head, co-head of basketball, brings Wes in. Um, they might hire CA Klein as a coach. Um, they, I don't know. I don't have like a difference to 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 make for you. I, this is all feels very similar in some ways for the Knicks, but I guess they're banking on the fact that these guys are running the team now, um, and that's that's kind of a difference maker. Well, speaking of running the team, uh, Seth, Danny Larue. Sam Vecini and I have been have been doing these uh, these pieces about the Delete Eight, the teams that were not invited to the fake bubble in Orlando, and the Knicks were one of them. And I know you were disappointed because uh, we all wanted to see more of this Knicks basketball team in particular. Um, they're in a really weird spot because we we are all expecting them to make huge free agent pitches, in particular the summer of 2021, uh, but none of us have any confidence in them actually landing a superstar free agent. Do Is you agree? the part where I talk you out of it? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Like, I mean... Why, why, is there, why is there so much optimism that the Knicks brand matters in 2021 
when it hasn't mattered at all in the last 20 years? Um, you know, I feel like this has been kind of an, it's like the Knicks are a a cycle. Like they're basically a marketing cycle in some ways. Um, at least the way that I've covered, I, I, during when I've covered them is, you know, every time there's a new boss that takes over, there's this new optimism around them. And that this is the person that can kind of fully optimize, um, everything that is the Knicks and make them a competitive team. I guess not only on the floor, but like in terms of like luring stars, right? I remember this happened with Phil Jackson when he, when he took over and it was supposed to be the cachet of, you know, the greatest coach of all time coming in as an executive and doing all that stuff and pulling the strings of like Knicks history to, I don't know, uh, come together Avengers style and bring the Knicks back into, uh, into modernity. Then it was Steve Mills and Scott Perry doing, and they would take like a different approach and they were supposed to get Kevin Durant last summer. And now we have Leon Rose and maybe it will work. Um, I'm not like a sports fatalist where I think history is doomed to repeat itself and that, you know, um, there's just an ongoing trauma that never ends for some franchises fans. But I would like to see proof of concept first before I can tell you why it's going to be different this time. I think um, maybe if you want to see optimism, it's that, you know, Leon Rose seems to be doing pretty well so far uh, through his first uh off season, not off season. I don't know what the hell you call these last few months. Um, he seems to be putting together a front office that people respect. Uh, I, I've heard good things about the people that he's hired. We'll see what he does with the coaching search. And if he brings in, you know, Tom Thibodeau, who's kind of the front runner right now, or someone else of the 11 person uh, group of candidates that they have set for interviews right now. But I, I guess the case for this being the time is that you have Leon Rose, you have, Worldwide West, um, this will be the combination that makes the Knicks different and respectable and brings their brand back into sync with what the Knicks think their brand is. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I guess that would be the case for it. I don't, I, 2021 seems kind of fast. Like, I, I don't think that they would be in the Giannis um, market because I, from everything I understand, like the suitors for Giannis are already contenders and they have already pre-existing relationships with him uh, through all the different people in their organization. I don't, maybe it's for someone else. Maybe they're hoping uh, that the next uh, unhappy superstar to hit the market is like someone, someone like Joel Embiid or Devin Booker um, or Carl Anthony Towns, you know, someone that Leon Rose just happened to represent when he was an agent at CAA. So that could be a battle plan. We'll see if it works. I, I think the one thing that's always kind of been difficult uh, for the Knicks to kind of bring into reality with whatever the perception is of the organization is that it's never been a destination for stars. You know, they have habitually struck out in free agency 2010, 2016, 2019, right? Their biggest star signing is Amari Stoudemire um, and his knees in 2010. And then they got Carmelo Anthony to come and jump on and take the money instead of waiting for free agency. And so I, I don't know. I don't have a clear-cut argument to make you, but that's me trying to talk you into it as I'm kind of rambling. So uh, if 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 uh, Dave, Danny, and I were chorus or a, or a choir, what we'd be singing over and over again is you can't skip steps. If there's a 
a commonality to all these kind of this is the the you know new savior same as the old one is that this this desire that okay it's fixed now we're ready we don't need to do these things that a normal basketball team does to get good we're just going to go straight to dessert what indications are there yet what will you be looking at in terms of okay this group really understands you can't skip steps look here's something i think we should all kind of understand at this moment right uh leon rose is kind of a well-known name in basketball circles in the NBA circles, right? Because of who he was as an NBA agent. Um, I I think his reputation there is kind of well-spoken for who he is as an NBA executive is not known at this moment, right? Like there's not been so much as a public uh, avowance of what his plan is. He hasn't spoken to the media in the um, three plus months that he's been the team president, right? He, uh, there's been no like, recitation of what he intends to do for the next uh, for the next two to four years or however long he's in office so I I honestly I don't want to like just lie to you or try to gaslight you I don't know what he wants to do with the team I can take some guesses based on um, kind of like the moves that they've made and try to project and try to uh, figure it out a little bit but I think those are all very important questions like to see when Steve Mills and Scott Perry took over, they talked very frequently about not skipping steps. I think they use those exact same words and look at where they ended up in December, 2019 when the Knicks were four and 20, uh, four and 18. Right. I guess the first big um, test for that would be the coach. Right. Like, I, I don't know what you guys think, but it seems like who they hire can kind of um, show their hand at maybe how quickly they want to try to rebuild this thing and h- how they want to rebuild the Knicks. Uh, depending on which of the 11 candidates they want to go with. Yeah, that's the that's it for me. Like the way I look at the Knicks is they're at a crossroads, right? And and the coaching decision will really kind of enlighten us into their plans, right? If you get a guy like Tibbs, these guys who are going to want to compete right away, I would expect the Knicks to make some crazy moves to try to get a superstar of some sort, or that's their goal. If they were to turn around and get a Kenny Atkinson, uh, Jamal Mosley, uh, you know, or, or, or somebody like that, more of a development coach, I'm like, okay, they're looking to kind of build this thing slowly. This is where the Knicks are right now. They're, they're literally at the fork in the road, and they're looking, and to the left is, let's go development. To the right is, let's just try to win now. Where do you see Mike Miller standing in this scenario with, with the Knicks? I mean, I think he'll get a look like he's going to be interviewed. I think they'll, um, you know, give him an honest and fair chance. But everywhere that I see the Knicks coaching search, or at least everything that I've heard to this point, is that Tom Thibodeau is the clear cut favorite at this point. So if if that's the case, you know, that kind of puts the ceiling for what Mike Miller's return to the organization can be as like an assistant coach, right? I, I think the interesting thing, if you follow the pattern that has emerged so far, at least of the hires that the Knicks have made um, with Leon is he hires people that he knows well. You kind of handicap the coaching search through that. That would be Tom Thibodeau, right? They've known each other for, I don't know, like almost two decades or something like that. If you want to think of whether they'd skip steps or not, then it's kind of based on your evaluation of what you think a Tom Thibodeau hire would mean. I, I think that that's, that's actually exactly the lens to look at this coaching search through. Do they expect internally that they're going to hit on one of these big free agents? Because their entire trajectory changes because of that. I don't even know if it's a free agent. It could be as much as, look, the nice thing that they have is that they do have a lot of cap space. Um, they have assets, they have picks to trade. So it might not necessarily even be free agents. It just could be like the next star player who wants out 
and finally decides that New York is a hospitable landing spot. That's probably realistic for them. And they've spoken, not openly, but like you see what they did when Steve Stout came on as a brand consultant as part of this like plan to kind of uh, remake the Knicks and their reputation. You know, he spoke about becoming a place that can generate uh, star free agents as a destination for them. I, I think that's kind of the plan internally. It was to make sure that they can eventually become the franchise that like the Lakers got to where despite what it was five years of losing and dysfunction, like LeBron says, I want to be in LA. Let's go to the, uh, go to the Lakers, right? Like that didn't work for them with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, even though the, they're the premier franchise in the very city that those two went to. It's hard to compare the two because there was a whole bunch of other reasons for LeBron to to come to LA, right? And that's been well documented. I, I just find it interesting for the Knicks. Like for me, I'd rather just, I think they got to go the development route. Start start thinking small before you try to get big. That's just the whole bullshit line that everybody makes when they first get hired. you know. And then the first <laughs> thing they do when they walk in the office is how do we skip steps one through five? It'll be interesting to see what they try to do, especially in the trade market. I wonder who they might try to go after. I mean, they got a couple of young guys that'd be interested. I, interesting. I still don't know really what to think of Kevin Knox. Uh, I'm still not sure where I'm at on RJ Barrett and, and and the likes, but what are you seeing in terms of the players now? Let's, let's kind of start to, to get there. Well, Mo, let me just say this. Maybe I'm a, you know, kind of a small minded parochialist guy living in New Jersey and growing up in this area, <laughs> but I feel like all this, all the reasons that LeBron wanted to go to LA uh, kind of works for New York too, right? Like, you can do some pretty good stuff for your brand and for your business uh, out of New York, and yet no one has bitten on the lure of that of this city um, as a place that they want to make their professional home, I, which I think kind of says something. But LeBron was a LeBron was a special case. I mean, like you know, I mean, think about how excited we got when KD had uh, what his thirty five ventures offices moved to New York. Right, and that's what I'm signed, saying. And, but like, he wanted to sign with Brooklyn. Like, my point is, like, it's not – I know the Knicks have issues, but the Knicks have been so colossally screwed up for so long that nobody trusts them. And 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 really, they, they don't trust the guy at the very, very top. Yeah, and that's kind of what I, I'm agreeing with. I'm just saying, like, they haven't gotten to the point where even they can utilize this uh, the city that they play in, like, the market, everything that comes with it as even a recruiting tool for them. Like with the people who did want to come to New York decided to go to Brooklyn, right. With a much smaller foot stamp, a foot uh, print in the city um, and like not the Knicks. And which I think is, you know, something that they're well aware of now. And like, they're trying to get to the, the organization to the point where it's like, all right, if you're going to come to New York, at least come to the Knicks, not the Nets. So I think even the way this conversation is going is almost illustrating the problem a little bit is it's, is it's these, these sweeping gestures. And, and really the first thing they need to do is become a real basketball team. That starts with, you know, the, the, the roster, Mo hit on it, but how do you think that the new, uh, the new leadership feels about the, the players who might be described as their young core? Uh, listen, my assumption is that they're not too wedded to any of them really. And I don't think that there's reason to be for anyone except for maybe like RJ Barrett and Mitchell Robinson. And, you know, it's something Seth, you and I have talked about in various uh, chats or whatever conversations online. Like I, those are really the only two big pieces that the Knicks have going forward. Um, and I, I think we're going to find out pretty quickly, probably within the year, how they feel about Mitchell Robinson. Cause he can, uh, he he can become like a restricted free agent possibly next summer and they can make a contract decision on him then. Uh, with R.J. Barrett, you know, he had this uneven year. 
I think uh, everyone has, based on reading the piece that you guys did, everyone has kind of varying degrees of confidence and interest in him going forward. And, you know, Frank Nilakina is in his last year of his rookie deal. Dennis Smith Jr. in last year of his rookie deal. Kevin Knox is possibly two years left, and he comes from Kentucky from a program that Leon Rose and, and William Wesley know well. But he's had a really, really tough start to his career. I don't know that there's a lot of pieces going forward that you, like, can bank on and say, hey, this is a pretty good starting ground for the organization. That's the biggest problem I have. Not a lot of assets. So the the actual team building part of this is going to be tough. You know, they're going to have a high draft pick this year in a draft, you know, where it's it's at least viewed as a down draft. You know, there's not like a franchise cornerstone necessarily jumping out. Like, how does this team build out with the roster they have? I mean, do you just hope that, you know, they, they get the number one pick, they can draft LaMelo Ball, which is my assumption, and just hope that he's great and that R.J., happens to, to pan out and uh, and maybe you get a, another free agent to come in three or four years when those guys are actually ready to compete? Or do you start dealing those guys and, and hope that you can hit on some better players? Yeah, I don't think they're going to take a three to four year wait and see plan. Well, because they've never tried it. Like if we want to be cynical or even realistic, look, um, like before the year, I, I noted, you know, David Fizdale had a really bad first season. He had a losing record, right? There's only been one coach who survived more than two years of losing records to start his career in New York under James Dolan, right? And that was Mike D'Antoni, and he got, like, really paid when he came to New York. So almost, like, that became cost prohibitive to some degree. Like, if you're being realistic about the Knicks, there's never really a lot of time to just rebuild and take a wait-and-see approach. There's always a clock ticking for you. So I don't – I mean, maybe even if they wanted to, uh, they're, they'd be taking their chances. And maybe because they realize – how unlikely it is to get four true years of a rebuild. What's even the point? That's where the Thibodeau hire actually will, will be an indicator on, on what the direction of the franchise is going forward. You don't make a hire like that if you're going to take the weight, the patient approach. And the patient approach is something they should look at considering they've never done it. Just try it. How about give that a shot? Because everything you've tried over the last, what, 20 years has not worked. And chasing stars and all of that. Like, just just go with the damn patient approach. But, Mo, I got to say, like, to take the patient approach, you got to get buy-in from the owner that he'll give you time, right? Even Phil Jackson got fired after three years, and he was, like, a legend getting paid $12 million a year. And they just picked up the last two years of his contract on an option, like, three months before, and then he still got fired. So patience is not really something that's afforded to people here. And so you can talk about it, but I mean, if I'm like, if I'm working in the Knicks front office, I'm also trying to be realistic about how long I'm trying to take and kind of game out how much time I'd have to be able to do all the things I want. I mean, I'd argue that Phil also lost patience by immediately going to sign Joe Kim Noah to that ridiculous contract, just because he was able to, <laughs> to, to hold himself on a pull-up bar or whatever, uh, going to trade for Derek That's not Gross. a true story, by the way. That's disappointing. Um, Sorry. <laughs> don't ruin my my. No, no, it's, it's my actually. Mission. Can I can I just take a tangent real quick? Yes, so, quickly because I actually <laughs> like this. It's because I went and looked this up when they waved Joe Kim Noah. They had a press conference. Phil Jackson says in the press conference, "Yeah, you know, I met with Joe Kim Noah. You know, he's got the shoulder surgery, and I want to see if he's okay. And I asked, you know, can I like pull up off your shoulder or something? Can I do pull ups? And like the shoulder was stable, and Joe Kim was able to do it. And I was like, all right, I'm sold. And then like 20 minutes later, an MSG Network. Uh, in a reporter asks Joe Kim about the story and just runs it back, just like Phil had said. And Joe Kim's face was basically like, huh? 
<laughs> anyway, go ahead. I just want but, to no, that that's, out. I love that that's story. A, that's a perfect place to to end our next conversation. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. Everybody, go check out Mike's reporting. I mean, with all the front office changes that have been happening, Mike has been all over them, including having a piece ready to go about World Wide West. What was it like? Twenty minutes after the news was announced. I don't know. I've lost track of time. I'm gonna. You wrote it in February. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. Moving on to the Charlotte Hornets, uh, which is our our next team on the list. Uh, And if you're interested in this series and not already a subscriber to the Athletic, go to theathletic.com/slash/back-to-back. That's B-A-C-K-T-O-B-A-C-K, and you can get a 30-day trial and check it out. But to my knowledge, uh, we're running through all these all the teams in the league, right, Seth? Yep, uh, we, we've got the we're starting with the, the elite eight, as uh, John Hollinger uh, uh, named them, and uh, sort of as teams become uh, become eliminated from contention uh, in in the bubble once we restart uh, or are losing losing the playoffs once the tournament starts, we're going to give them the same treatment. So, uh, it kind of is self scheduling for us in that way. Yeah, so uh, not just the hopeless teams. We'll actually get to some of the good teams, too. Uh, but speaking of a hopeless team, the Charlotte Hornets. How dare you. <laughs> uh, listen, how different are they actually from the New York Knicks? The one difference I, is the coach. See, I disagree. The Knicks, we've talked about, and I said it, they're at a crossroads. They have multiple different routes they can go. I'm telling you right now, the Charlotte Hornets are in the same forest, but they're just walking around in a circle. They're not in a crossroads. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Like, it's just getting, to me, it's like they don't have a plan. There's nothing clear or organized. Now, the Knicks might easily end up walking around in a circle as well, not too far from now. But for me right now, they're in two different places because the Knicks have a chance to kind of be different. I think the only thing I'd say that I have really positive hope for the the Hornets is, and you said it, they got a good coach. They got a good coach developing guys it seems like the guys are really into him and james borrego and i think they're they're rolling with that they screwed up the whole kemba walker thing they should have been trading him in february instead they don't and now they do a sign and trade and they get terry rozier it's like all right big whoop now you're part of the delete eight they're just like all right let's just throw some stuff together and hope it works well to give them a, a little bit of you know benefit of the doubt they're just finishing up year two with with like the new regime and, and with Borrego. So they lost Kemba Walker. They they had, I mean, they struggled, obviously, without Kemba Walker. But there are some bright spots, right, Seth? Are there? Uh, no, <laughs> no from a, from a, I mean, from a playing standpoint, I mean, I think you can say, you can look and see that, you know, Devontae Graham is a, is a you know, you, you get a rotation level player in the second round. You're happy with that. Uh, P.J. Washington looks like a guy who's going to be, you know, a rotation level player for a while, but that's, yeah, we, we did a nice job finding a couple of rotation guys and that's our, that, and, and we, we have a good young coach and those are your selling points. Where are you? Right. And, and they have the challenge that, that maybe New York doesn't, at least uh, from a perception standpoint. Now, New York hasn't been able to sign free agents, but, I don't think Charlotte is going to sign any free agents. That should almost make the job easier. Most talking about they're walking in circles. Well, the, the Knicks have, you know, a, a forking path that they can take where, okay, we can start chase here. We can build slow there. The Hornets have one path that they can take and they just need to get on it. So then in a way that, that that's almost, you know, it, it is the, by having fewer kind of avenues, 
they can at least focus on one strategy. It's just they got to, you know, both both choose that focus and then execute on They're, it. As a small market team, they had a superstar in, in Kemba Walker, or at least a star, a building piece, a, a foundational piece. And then they just let him walk at the end of the day. Like, it's so hard for it's small market teams to get to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating in that sense of just like all the reasons for them to not have traded him back when they – you know, when he's heading into his free agency stuff, and that's where they drop the ball. And that's why they're, they're going to be in this treadmill of crap for a long time. Not the treadmill of crap. Yeah, no, it's not even the treadmill <laughs> of mediocrity. It's crap. <laughs> I was going to say mediocrity. And then I realized, no, it's just crap. It's even worse. Uh, yes. Listen, I, they are handcuffed. And, and like, like Seth said, I mean, this should make the job easy going forward. Like, you know, you need to hit on the draft. You know, you got to find those second round gems. How does that work? Like, I mean, you're just waiting for a foundational superstar to drop into your lap. That's the game, right? And you got to make smart decisions around the edges. You got to be, you got to be smart about your development program. You got to be looking for advantages and, and opportunities to to kind of jump in. I mean, they're, they're cap strapped, so it's not like they could jump into trades and, and, and pick up extra assets. It's all about development for them and finding young guys. It's utilizing their, their G League team and, and building all that up. I just think they're in a – I just don't trust them to do it. You know, MJ keeps bringing in Carolina guys. I mean, Mitch Kupchak's another Carolina guy, and, and, and we talk about the new regime, but they're doing the same old things. So let's go back to Barejo. I mentioned – that they actually attack the basket and they shoot threes. They don't make shots, but they're getting good looks. Mo, you know, you know, like this is sort of the identity thing coming from the Spurs. It seems like all the guys from Pop's coaching tree—that's what they want to do first. But how do you do that when you don't have talent? That's the hard thing. They're getting the shots. Like you can't, you can't look at it and say like, well, the coach is putting us in bad positions. They're getting you guys the shots. You're just not making them. Is a whole, a whole different. Okay, now when you start getting players, it's, it's like sort of what Seth was saying about being a. All right, now you want to be a competitive team because you have a coach that's along the lines with the shooting profile. But the most important thing for any coach when they first come in is. Who are we going to be? What's our culture? And how are we going to play? Borrego's doing that and and and, and putting them in in places. And and now they got to the front office has got to do their part and start kind of bringing in guys. I, I don't expect uh, too much of a leap from them. Devonte Graham, it's a it's a great story, but you know I, I think he tops out as like a high end backup. I, I compared him to Patty Mills a little bit. Seth, you said he's he's the worst finisher in the league. There are thereabouts with if you look at at shots at the rim with a with some defensive pressure on him. I, he was in the low forties, I want to say, uh, on that, which was uh, you know either among or the worst in the league, depending on how you uh, you know you set your your attempts minimum. Terry Rozier was their big free agent signing, and we just barely talk about it. when when Mo was saying they let Kemba get away for nothing right if they'd have let Kimba get away for nothing they probably would have been better off now some of that is <laughs> now some of that I think that that's slightly unfair because part of the reason why Rogier would probably look better if Graham hadn't stepped up and they weren't largely duplicative right um because if, if Graham plays kind of at the level he did as a rookie then like Rogier would have done some some you know reasonably important floor raising for them, but but it is kind of he is a guy we just like well just okay it's only three years so we'll just let that contract run um, is kind of what he became almost immediately. Yeah, uh, a question that I I posed before we started recording: Would you guys rather have Michael Jordan or James Dolan as team no owner? <laughs> I would just look at it this way: I wouldn't be happy with my choices, but at least Dolan spends. I think that's all we've got on the Hornets. Uh, also, over at The Athletic, 
Seth, you have taken to one of my rallying cries, uh, and and you think the NBA should shorten the schedule. I'm all on board. I think they should shorten the schedule. I think realistically, they something that, that might actually happen is to reconfigure the schedule because you know we all saw the news on Monday when uh, Davis Bertans uh, opted out of of what for the Wizards are fairly meaningless bubble games, and for a guy who's who's in line for his last big paycheck for a team that, you know, is playing for the opportunity to get stomped in the first round. Uh, what's the point? Also a guy um, who's had two ACL. Yes. Tears. Yeah. Though, but the thing is, is, is uh, that logic holds true, whether this was, this is happening now in a bubble restart, right. As it would in on March 20th in a normal season. And that just illustrates the point that these, like the last 20 games of the season are completely superfluous. Um, I, I, in the piece, I did some research just, you know, breaking down I, for the purposes of what you're using the season for in terms of identifying the playoff teams and coming up with rough seating. 60 some games is fine. It, get, it gets you the exact same place and then let's do the playoffs. So we have these 20 game, the, the space of these 20 games to work with. Let's do something interesting with them. Well, look, I'm, I'm in let's, favor let's, of expansion. I, I think adding two teams just makes so much sense. Add two teams, have a balanced schedule, and you know everybody's happy. I got, you still I got need some, the revenue. I still got yeah. something to do with those twenty teams, those twenty games, Seth. What's that? Cut them. Here's the thing: the the advantages you're going to get are going to far outweigh anything else. Players are going to be a little more rested. You're also going to have your staff rested and, and and sharper and in better positions and healthier in that regard and i think the gameplay is just going to be so much better and then it makes the regular season matter more each of these games carry more significance because you can't blow any this is going to cut away from load management this is going to make the games just feel more important you will make up the difference in terms of revenue in in the long run but I think in the in the short term, yeah, you're going to take a hit. I, I would be willing to countenance you getting some of the money back through in, in increased kind of quality and scarcity and being able to charge a little bit more for seats and stuff like that. I think saying that you, by cutting a quarter of your inventory, you're going to raise your per unit cake enough to make up for that. I think that's some very like magic asterisks. Your TV deal ends up, the the ad they can charge more for advertisers because there's less scarcity there's there's it, it goes around the whole way you know it, it, honestly i just think in the long run and maybe it's not 60 something like i pitched before a 72 game season and and realistically hit all the marks hit all your national tv games i th- i think this is definitely going to be a point where where we're going to have to agree to disagree because i think that i don't first of all i don't think in, in a realistic sense i don't think well they'll take a short term hit okay well we're done then um, as far as as far as something actually happening, so I think we do need to to get a little bit a little bit creative. Um, and then that, by the way, uh, that'll actually be a little bit of a test for that because we can see kind of what happens with the regular season revenue if we go to some kind of tournament. If you actually are, you know, you if it's a you do a tournament, that's a that's that's presumably a different TV package. So now you I can mean, see what the what the local deals are, what the national deals are for this, you know, 60 whatever game regular season. And maybe maybe you have, uh, you know, revenue has stayed relatively flat. But I think that just saying we're going to cut this and there's going to be less revenue and we'll live with it. I, I, the, 
just mm-hmm. don't. The playoffs are the tournament, Seth. Like we don't. I mean, we don't need more. We don't need more tournaments. I'm sorry, guys. Like I get the in season tournament. We've talked about this before. Like the guys aren't going to care. Yeah, I'm. I'm with you on that. I. I, I think that well, uh, you. You have to find a way to make them care, and I don't know how you do that without large sums of money. Well, then stack up big stacks of cash. That, there you go. I actually, I'm in favor of doing a tournament single site. Here we go. Nonstop. This is, this is Seinfeld. Single this is, this site is... with the money hanging over center court. Let's do it. Let's do it with a ladder. And you got to, you got to not forget the ladder. Your team has to build themselves the human ladder to get to the money. I wouldn't even have them play basketball at that. Yeah. Point. Like, let's yeah. just start doing that. Like we're, this is, we're, we're going in circles. We've had this exact conversation no, before. That's yeah, why I made that Seinfeld reference. Go check that out over at the athletic. And, uh, you know, if you guys have some ideas on, on maybe how the league should change the regular season schedule, let us know in the comments. We have been checking those. Uh, we will be using it for a future mailbag. Um, for Mo, for Seth, for Dr. Benny, for Mike Vorkanoff, I'm Dave DeFore. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next week.